Did you know smallholder farms provide up to 80% of the food supply in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa? Welcome to Sustainability Matters Today, where you'll learn about the fantastic work people and organizations are doing right now to heal our planet through environmentally friendly products and methodologies. My name is Daniel Hartz, and I speak with amazing champions of sustainability who prove a clean and beautiful future on Earth is possible because green practices oftentimes make financial sense. I aim to uncover the important role money plays in people's decisions to adopt and commit to environmentally friendly practices in order to create a chain reaction of positive change. In each episode, you'll also learn practical steps you can take every day to live a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Let's jump in. In this episode of Sustainability Matters Today, I interviewed Jeff Abella, co-founder of Mocha Origins, a bean-to-bar chocolate manufacturer and specialty coffee roaster, and champion of economic development through sustainable agriculture. Founded in 2015, Mocha Origins has been empowering rural African farming communities by providing smallholder farmers with technical training and sustainable marketing links while supporting the local economy through their chocolate and coffee products. In April 2019, Mocha Origins won the Bronze Prize in the annual FedEx Small Business Grant Contest. They also received the Innovator of the Year Award from the Wayne Economic Development Corporation in 2017. Please make sure to subscribe to the Sustainability Matters Today podcast to learn more about other champions of sustainability like Jeff. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining me, Jeff. Great to have you on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here, Daniel. I'd, I'd love to start with a quick autobiography um, and, and learn more about you. So can you tell us a bit about your journey on how you got to where you are today? Yeah, you bet. So... We are Mocha Origins, and we're a bean-to-bar chocolate company and specialty coffee roasting company. And my, I think, journey, as you put it, uh, really started about 13 years ago when I found out about an incredible not-for-profit called the Himalayan Institute based in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I was working in, in the Midwest in Madison, Wisconsin, doing audio engineering for a recording studio. And at that point became familiar with the Himalayan Institute and um, really what it does globally with international development work in, in communities that are kind of still developing, as well as in the U.S., which is really uh, focused around wellness and, uh, and health. And so in 2007, my wife and I moved to Pennsylvania to become uh, part of the Himalayan Institute's volunteer team. And more specifically, to lead some developments in West Africa in a country called Cameroon. Awesome. And how, um, how did you get involved? Why specifically Cameroon? Yeah, so the institute that we had started working for was already looking at places within West Africa to start, start its projects. And these were projects that historically they had done in, in India, a lot of development work in India, uh, building libraries and, and schools, and uh, were invited to... West, West Africa and ultimately Cameroon to bring that model of community development there. And it just kind of timed out perfect with my wife and I's interest of joining the Himalayan Institute and the startup of those programs in Cameroon. And so we were part of the kind of founding team to um, go over there and create a, a really nice base of 
people within Cameroon, um, the Cameroonian uh, community members and, um, and kind of start the project uh, from scratch. And so that was, yeah, already 12 years ago. Wow. I'm sure the, the time goes by really quickly. <laughs> that, that first project that you started, what, what exactly was it that you were, you were doing? So the whole kind of point was to create a network of, of community centers and these community centers run by, uh, you know, local people from the communities that we're working with to work with them to establish public libraries, a network of holistic health centers, mm-hmm. a school of carpentry and construction, and then a wide range of environmental projects like reforestation efforts, tree plantation projects, uh, even deep well water projects for uh, drinking water in some rural communities. That's really cool. And so is that those projects are really how you got started in this sustainability, quote unquote, or kind of environmentally friendly projects? Absolutely. Yeah. So we, you know, we jumped in kind of with both feet, my wife and I, uh, and uh, within about a year and a half, I was appointed country director for that project in Cameroon. Um, and since then, I've spent uh, about half of my year there. And then in other projects that have kind of spawned off of that in central Mexico, working with coffee farming communities, as well as in South India and North India. And so it Cameroon and the, the village that we're in, in Kumbo, in the Northwest region has really kind of become our home hmm. and just absolutely fell in love with the, the culture and the community and, and continue now to take our children there. And what started as a network of health centers and libraries has evolved into something uh, even richer than that, which is directly working with farmers who are growing cocoa and coffee. Got it. So that's where Mocha Origins came from then. Exactly. Yeah. That's where the whole idea of sustainability from an environmental standpoint comes into play. The coffee and chocolate is, I mean, if you if you read the story about Mocha Origins and, and if, if you look at any of the packaging, it, it's all about how the coffee or the chocolate that uh, you use is very different. Uh, maybe we can establish a baseline. So how are coffee and chocolate normally farmed? What's the sort of standard procedure that the vast majority of, I'm assuming it's the vast majority of plantations use or do? Sure thing. So when we started working with these um, farming communities on our in our libraries and health centers, we started really getting more just connected with them at a human level and kind of couldn't ignore what they were doing on their, you know, their other time, which is farming coffee and, and cocoa. And so we really kind of took notice at what were some of the shortcomings within that sector. And over the course of years, our interest became very concentrated on finding ways to add value to the coffee and cocoa sector at origin. So at at the country of origin. And what's neat about a lot of West African production of coffee and cocoa, something that I find very interesting is that it's called smallholder farming, where For example, our Cameroon coffee bean that we roast and sell and work with is grown by 3,700 farmers. Uh, And and then this is different than like big plantation, more commodity style coffee, which is often owned by one farmer or one plantation and uses mechanized production uh, to grow. And so what's neat about that is it's a really kind of diversified wealth. Uh, It really diversifies Mm. the wealth. In that we're now working with 3,700 farmers. And there's a lot of challenges with that, of course. Um, there right. can be quality inconsistencies and there can be 
a lot of challenges around getting them certified. And we can talk more about that in a minute. But really what I liked about it was the fact that we can have this connection and really engage in thousands of farmers' lives uh, and hopefully make a meaningful difference. And so when we started, you know, it was just Cameroon. It was just these coffee farmers. And then that turned into cocoa farmers there as well. Um, And one thing that was clear was the lack of education or input back into these communities. In other words, there was people buying and trading these beans, uh, but there wasn't any like reinfusion of knowledge or wealth back into these communities. And so before we actually started roasting or making chocolate, roasting coffee or making chocolate, we started a farming project. And this was my business partner and I's idea to create value back at the country of origin. So we started a a farm and we started growing cocoa and other tree crops, other tropical food crops as a way to kind of reinvest back into the communities that were exporting those crops. And that's kind of our commitment towards, um, yeah, adding more value back at origin. So that's where the word origins comes from then. Exactly. And mocha for coffee. Yep. Yeah. Mocha meaning coffee and chocolate. Okay. Um, you know, if you order a mocha latte, it's usually meaning you're ordering a coffee with chocolate in it. And that's so, true. Right. so mocha is this, you know, to us, it kind of represents Cameroon, the place where they're able to grow coffee at the higher elevations and then sustainably grow cocoa at the lower elevations. And origins, it's kind of like the origin of our company. It's the origin of these two different ingredients. Uh, so that's that, that play on words there. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good name. I like that it has a story to it. So, and you, you mentioned that they, they grow, um, that the farmers you work with grow sustainably, the, the coffee and the chocolate. So what does that mean exactly? I mean, what's, the, what's unsustainable chocolate and coffee farming? And then what is sustainable? You bet. So sustainability is something that we talk a lot about. And I think um, the world is talking a lot about it. And to me, there's different meanings to it. And when we talk about it in terms of environmental sustainability and its role in coffee and cocoa production, uh, I guess what we're talking about really is the effects on the environment. And Mm -hmm. if the practice is being used to grow and, you know, harvest and process the cocoa beans and coffee beans, is it one that is using practices that are not deteriorating the environment, but, you know, adding maybe more richness or um, a value to it. And so, you know, organic farming or just even being more mindful with the inputs that some farmers are using. And, you know, it's a really tough thing. You have to lead by example. So when we started, you know, farming coffee and cocoa, it was clear that it's a lot to ask someone to stop doing what they've been doing for like generations and generations. Right. And so it's actually not even an appropriate request. So what my business partner and I have done, the first thing, it was, you know, a, a kind of a local project. So we have a whole local board of directors that are all Cameroonian that helped really kind of architect like the vision of this project and mm-hmm. based that off of the needs of the community. So when we talk about sustainability, I also like to mention like the human element of that, the sustainability from um, engaging community members that are local. And why that's sustainable is because if Mocha leaves or if if I leave, my business partner leaves, um, the project's not going anywhere. It's actually managed locally. There's a local board of directors that governs it. And there's a little even business model that supports it so that there's financial sustainability as well. And to take it a step further, we're also teaching how to grow 
coffee and cocoa in a way that's environmentally sustainable. So I think holistically, if we look at the word sustainability, there's several different facets that we need to look at, including like the human element, Mm -hmm. the financial component, as well as the environmental part of it. I think those those two elements of sustainability, meaning the environmental and the financial, are actually they're two different sides of the same coin. The focus of my podcast is the financial benefits or the financial kind of motivation almost behind environmental sustainability because and and it sounds like this is what you're saying too, it's the idea that if it's not financially sustainable, then it's just not something that will be done. Uh, for an extended period of time, and it certainly won't be done with people who, by people rather who you know don't have tons of extra money to donate mm-hmm. to something, and that, that's what it becomes is a donation. It's more of a charity in that sense. And if you're able to instead find a way to make it financially sustainable, and even better if it's if it's more profitable or if it saves you more money than the old way, it's something that kind of becomes a no brainer. Yeah, exactly. And it takes a pretty broad mind to kind of frame uh, sustainability in that, in that way and with that definition. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah. The, the um, one of the projects we were working on was a, a partnership with a rice cooperative and Cameroon is known for a high export quantity of rice. So the majority mm-hmm. of the, the rice that Cameroon consumes, Cameroonians consume is imported and it's shocking because it's such an incredible climate to grow rice and with investment into the infrastructure and training within the the rice cultivation sector it could actually be like a net exporter if it wanted to it could at least consume everything that it's growing and it would create a lot of jobs along the way so we partnered with this village who was um actually growing the medicinal herbs that we were using in our health formulations for our health centers and we started working with them more on their rice project as well um by giving them access to uh even power tillers and some rice cultivation equipment and around that same time a not-for-profit emerged from this area Uh, in this area, and they were based in the U.S. Their whole mission was to import rice, wheat, and dairy, powdered milk, and give it away for free to different communities. You know, it was a shock to the locals. Um, You know, part of the idea was that, okay, it's, it's it's affordable or free food access, so ultimately, I understand that, and people understood that. Right. Um, but the what it ended up doing was completely deteriorating the agricultural potential of rice, the dairy sector that was emerging, as well as the different grains and wheats that were be that were, they were growing. The market completely dropped. No one was buying because there was handouts at every corner, and it 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 really had more like negative you know ramifications than any positive gain. Um, and that's a local perspective. You know, me as an outsider, ultimately, we're ultimately might think, well, that's, you know, that's a noble mission. They're, ex- they're importing food and giving it away, but um, it really deteriorated an economy. And in, in this area of Cameroon, there's not a lack of agricultural potential. There's not a lack of food either. So it just didn't really fit with the like development needs of this community. And it's just kind of an example of, I think where someone had a good intention, but they didn't really have like a holistic perspective on what the community's needs were and it created more harm than good. So that's an unsustainable approach to community development. It created a dependent, a dependency and it completely uh, kind of collapsed a micro economy within the agricultural sector. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good story. It's very, it's really interesting, and it, I think it sheds a lot of light on um, this idea. Exactly like you said, it there was a lot of good intention there, and um, yeah, it's kind of misguided a little bit and a bit misdirected. And as you were telling that story, the, all I was thinking rather was they should just whatever funds they're raising and 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 using to get you know get the product and then ship it over, they should really be investing in education uh, and getting. Mm-hmm. Um, getting the people that they're helping to learn to grow the food themselves and, you know, learn to sell that food and, and then use the money to invest in their future and so on. And yeah, it's, it's a shame because I, it makes me think, it makes me wonder how many other organizations there are that are causing those or or doing those kind of issues. And actually um, in the, in the grand scheme of things are probably causing, you know, issues to persist rather than helping people to actually learn to get out of out of the problem. So that was in 2010. And it was when my business partner and I really started to frame our own um, idea to mm. found Mocha. Um, and it took several years, we eventually founded Mocha in 2015 in Cameroon, with the whole idea to kind of combat that um, instead of investing or donating towards aid, let's create an agricultural project that employs farmers, and ultimately, though, it can be used as a training hub to educate surrounding farmers on best practices and how to grow cocoa and coffee in a way that gives you a better quality coffee and cocoa bean, which then is more valuable that you can sell for more in the premium market that's emerging in the United States and, and other countries. Yeah. And that's kind of a, uh, an evolution of, of Mocha's yeah, origin story. Yeah, very cool. And I... It's certainly happening here in the UK. I'm, I'm noticing there are some pretty uh, high-end chocolate companies that are really gaining in popularity. Yeah, in order to to sell, you know, a chocolate bar that costs four or five pounds, you really need to have high quality product, and people are buying them. So there certainly is a market. I think it makes sense. And so, it, you know, you're, you're mentioning this idea that financial sustainability is really important. Um, and I know that. Well, you you told me before that Mocha Origins is a for-profit company. So what's the thought process behind mm-hmm. keeping it for profit? Why is that? It sounds to me like that was very intentional uh, and there's good reason for it. Great question. Um, it was actually a tough decision to make because ultimately the idea was a mission kind of based project. And, you know, with that, we have a not-for-profit. We did make a very conscious decision to structure it as a for-profit in that, we wanted to kind of like walk our talk. We wanted to create what we call a social enterprise, just a typical business structure, a corporate structure, if you will, that has kind of a mission first approach to its business and and hopefully can kind of use this as a model to show other companies, even small businesses, how you can have a, a business that can have a mission attached to it, or maybe even be like the, you know, the underlying principle of your existence. And the reason we did that too, was to kind of show the sustainability aspect. So Mocha Origins is producing coffee and chocolate and the sale of coffee and chocolate, then we can use to infuse our mission work in Cameroon. And instead of using aid money and donations and charity to support our Mocha Origins mission work in Cameroon, we can instead rely on the sales growth. So why that's important is because we can then grow, you know, the the mission side of our work, the educational aspects of our work. We can grow that with balance uh, to our, our corporate success or our sales success here in the United States with our coffee and our chocolate um, instead of becoming too... 
maybe top heavy and vulnerable because we have so much overhead on our mission work because we grew that out of balance with our, our sales and revenue on the chocolate and coffee side. Uh, so the idea was to kind of have a, a more balanced, sustainable approach to how we grow our mission work is going to be based off of our, our product sales. And um, also the other thing is that we wanted something that, yeah, could kind of be not dependent on aid, not dependent on donations. So if, um, you know, we decide to uh, stop selling chocolate or coffee, you know, the cocoa farm and the educational project over there can still live on because they're growing plantains and bananas and selling cocoa beans to other producers and food crops. Uh, so kind of delinking Mocha Origins Cameroon from any Western involvement. Um, we can help fuel it with product sales as we gain those and grow that. But at the same time, we're not creating any dependency. They can operate autonomously and really grow as they need to as well. I think it, it makes sense to be for profit, especially because we're, you know, as we were just talking about earlier, you mentioned leading by example. And then we were talking about the importance of really bringing people up so that they are independent. Um, and if these are, if the, those two things are important to to you and it's important to instill those kind of thought processes into others, then you know you should lead by example and be for profit and show others that you know what actually this is something that we can do ourselves. We don't require any help from anyone else. We just need to have the right systems in place. And then before you know it, you know we're a profitable company. We're we're independent, like you said, and um, everyone wins. Yeah. Definitely. And the, the other the other example too, Daniel, is, is like telling the world that just good sourcing of your ingredients, I don't care if you're making chocolate or coffee, it could be anything. Sourcing responsibly can really influence some positive change at the countries of origin. So even if it, you're a shirt manufacturer and your cotton's coming from you know, this country, well, make sure it's coming from an ethical source and then buy as much as you can and sell as many shirts as you can because the sale of your product with it being linked to a, you know, well-run ethically sourced farm is going to create a lot of potential for those farmers versus looking at them as beneficiaries to your cause. No, like we're not out to save the world. We're out to incorporate the farmers in our business model and make them part of the supply chain. They're entrepreneurs, not like beneficiaries. Yeah. And so that's the overall idea. It's kind of an ideological uh, mindset. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is ideological. And yet at the same time, there is to me, it very, it sounds very capitalistic. Um, and it sounds just like this is solid business. It makes bus good business sense, you know? Kind of setting you up for this here, but you know, would you say that being an environmentally friendly is a business plan or a viable way to run a business? Yeah, I think it's a really um, important thing that companies should ask themselves early on uh, what their kind of stance is going to be on environmental responsibility. And yeah, so that's a big part of who we are in, in Cameroon on our farm, as well as with the other farmers that we source from. And within Mocha here in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, um, when you come into our factory, we'll show you how we're zero waste and really take it upon our, ourselves at a cost to be more uh, responsible with the environment. Mm -hmm. Do you ever consider those costs that you just said, you know, zero waste and uh, whatever other sustainable practices you use, which are potentially more expensive? Do you see that as a marketing cost in the sense that you can 
put on your website and on your packaging that you are environmentally friendly. You know, you have all of these practices that are meant to sustain uh, the earth and so on and so forth. Do you do you ever see it that way? Absolutely. I think companies often see it that way. Well, it's a marketing in it's a marketing intention that the consumers need to see. So let's put it there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and I think that that's I think that that's a, a problem. There's a there's a whole other side of of the coin, and so when you have a certified sustainable, let's call it organic, and when we start talking about certifications, you know, seeing that logo on the packaging is really important. We've all been trained to look for it. Without it, I'm not going to purchase it. And the expense of obtaining it yeah. for a small manufacturer like us is is huge. Uh, currently, we have eight different certifications that we that we abide by, and it's a, a massive financial uh, commitment for us. And it only covers us for the different ingredients that are also certified. And what I mean by that is we source organic produce from all over the world, but not all of it is organic certified because a lot of the farmers that we source from don't have the uh, access to the certification uh, resources. The, co- the cost of certification is very high. And we've kind of taken it upon ourselves to source from really unique uh, farms and origins around the world. Mm. Um, and we take great pride in that, that we're unlocking the potential of all these great farms. However, you know, they don't have the ability to get a certification, like maybe their neighbor, uh, who had more resources. It's the same bean, the same organic grown principles, but one could afford the certification and therefore the label is on the product and the consumers are only buying his product versus the neighbor who's using everything the same but couldn't afford that certification. So there's a whole story to tell about uncertified organic. And I think the downside to certifications and how consumers respond to certifications and and the the other side of the coin, as far as the the negative effects to not buying uncertified organic produce. Yeah. And I I know that when we were were talking earlier, you, you mentioned that you're actually that you actually prefer working with products that are not certified. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the ones that you mentioned are organic, fair trade, Rainforest Alliance are the big ones. You also mentioned UTZ, and that's Z for, for Zulu. What are these certifications? Um, as, as you said, people were trained to look for them, and yet here you're saying that you actually prefer working with products that are not certified. So what's the, where's that kind of like discrepancy and what, how, how do we think about it? Yeah, you bet. So great question. And it's a tough one for me to answer because, um, you know, having certified organic products is clear to the consumers. When we have an uncertified product that we know is organic, it's hard to convey that to a consumer. So sales will be low. And so the certifications are a big part of marketing. And when I say I I like working with uncertified um, organic ingredients, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of my way of saying that. I think there's a flaw in the system. And I think that certifications are really important because they have defined some standards, some really important principles that we should all follow. But I think they also put a lot of really good farms at a great disadvantage because they couldn't afford those expensive certifications. So now what to do for all of them? And I don't necessarily have an answer to that. What I try to do personally is invest the time to research who we're getting it from ideally even go over there and see their, their, their practices and kind of do a self audit, uh, evaluate ourselves whether or not the farm has, you know, is following these practices and principles, even though they couldn't afford the certification, 
um, and then buy from them and then use their produce. So I think that if we as consumers can somehow gain access, a little bit more transparent access or point of view to where our produce comes from, uh, we're going to see that it's not just all about the sticker or the certification. So if you're doing the independent audit, which makes sense and, and that will um, you know, make, make you feel comfortable, it sounds to me like then in that case, you can't use certain labels on your packaging because they're uncertified organic, as you called them. And then there's also this fact that, like you said, we're trained to look for those labels. How can consumers choose the best options that, I guess, perhaps help the most number of people or that, that support you know, the people who really deserve it and, and simply can't afford a certification? How, how can, so I go to a store, how can I make sure that I'm actually buying a really good product, even though I'm not seeing the, the labels that I know I should be looking for? I think one thing that consumers can do is get to know their food a little bit better. And, um, you know, a lot of people shop maybe based off of value and there's yeah economic uh, reasons why that's like really important too for, for a lot of people. Um, but if we're in a place where we have some choice, you know, I think spending the time to choose wisely is really important and getting to know the brands that they're buying from. So for example, you might see like direct trade. That's a term that's used commonly to talk about the relationship between the manufacturer and the person growing the produce. So direct trade would imply that they have, you know, greater visibility to where their produce is coming from. Well, great. Then check out that brand and see what are some of the the values that they, you know, hold and, and, you know, abide by. And just getting, getting a little bit closer with the, um, the brands that we purchase from understand their story and their intentions, you know, so it, it, it's not like a, it's not like a quick answer. I don't think there's any like stamp or, or label that you can really put on it. But I, I think that we could all do a little bit more, um, spend a little bit more time cross-checking to see what companies are we buying from and what are their methods of ensuring quality and environmental responsibility for the foods that they're making. Yeah. It's interesting because you're, you know, you mentioned transparency earlier. Um, and I would imagine that these that companies that are perhaps using, um, just going back to that term you mentioned, uncertified organic produce, they're going to talk about that on their website. I guess the, the point is that we don't necessarily need to rely on any sort of governments or anything to force companies to be more transparent, although it could potentially be helpful. Uh, companies like Mocha Origins, you know, you're you're going to be talking about the fact that you know here are the the people that you work with. Here's what it's supporting. Here's the quality of the produce. Here's what we look for, and all of that information will be written on your website. I, I think it really just comes down to the consumer spending a little bit more time researching and finding those those products that actually match the values that yeah. that you know that they have and that they want to support. And um, if you're able to do that, then you can confidently purchase something. And at that point, you're, you start voting with your dollar, which I think is probably the, the strongest vote that any person has. Yeah. And you know, what's also interesting is like the, the values around these sustainable certifications mm-hmm. are, they're all about promoting sustainability, but it's almost like the practice itself isn't sustainable. And, and this is from a farmer perspective. Mm. You know, I think you summed it up well. What can we do? Well, we can do our homework and our research and try to get to know the companies we're buying from. And hopefully they're telling the stories of the the values about the produce. 
But I think we have a lot of work to do to kind of refine our, our certification standards and the cost of those certifications, especially how they affect the producers who are the most vulnerable, oftentimes the least compensated part of the supply chain. Yeah. Switching gears, because I think certainly something that you, you focus on and spend quite a bit of time doing is eco-tours. I think it'd be really interesting to hear more about what these eco-tours are and, and what they focus on just in the in the light of how the, the farmers are oftentimes the, the most neglected part of the supply chain. So can you tell us a little bit about you know what are these eco-tours? What do they focus on? Uh, what are some of the places you go? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what you hope people take away from these trips. And, you know, after they, they do the, um, the trip and, and they're back home, what do you hope people reflect on and, and think about moving forward? Absolutely. The whole idea behind our eco trips or we're calling origin trips are kind of exactly what we've been talking about as far as transparency. Um, but it's the idea that Mocha should take it upon itself to try to close the gap between the consumers and the growers and create a more direct relationship between everyone in the supply chain. And so it's kind of this idea of like radical transparency. Um, it has a lot of people nervous as far as uh, other companies. You know, um, I had one company reach out saying, well, that's just extreme. Yeah. Um, you're willing to kind of disclose the farmers and, you know, your compensation and in your relationship um, from point A to point Z. And yeah, we find a lot of richness in that actually. Um, when my wife and I started sourcing cocoa and coffee, I mean, you know, we'd go out on, on days, week long expeditions to these, you know, corners of like Cameroon and, 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 and have these incredible experiences in these, in these villages and really get to know the farmers. And it was never about like, is this chocolate going to be cost competitive and valuable on the market? Uh, which is an important part of business, but that was never the the um, kind of starting goal. And and I think that experience added so much more appreciation for us as far as um, you know how we value chocolate and and how we now think about anything we consume or anything we even engage in. Um, like I mentioned, the shirt and the cotton and the whole story behind how that was grown. Mm -hmm. I think there's such a lack of kind of understanding around the source of everything that we consume on a daily basis. And I think that if, if there was more of an understanding, ultimately there'd be more of an appreciation. And if there was more of an appreciation, then I think a more sustainable relationship would exist between consumers and the producers. And so the whole idea behind our origin trips are to take people on a week long journey to the source of the beans that we use to make our coffee and our chocolate and live with the families, volunteer on their farms, really experience what is life like in the communities that are producing these beans and yeah, contributing a little bit, but really gaining a ton of insight into, into the producing world um, while then, you know, having an incredible journey to some far off places. So there's a lot of cultural exchange and kind of cultural um, experiences that uh, that exist on these trips from yeah different uh, like local rituals and ceremonies, as well as then some fun ecotourism things. So swimming, waterfalls, and some really like environmentally friendly, low footprint travel uh, adventure. Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun. And I think um, organizing that and actually doing it on a every year must be just amazing. 
It's pretty incredible. It's like, you know, chocolate and coffee. Who doesn't love that? Meets yeah. um, volunteerism, meets like the world's um, most richest vacation and, and and then doing it with for a greater for you know a greater cause 100 percent of the proceeds support moco origins development work and so it's just kind of a really great way to spend your time and your vacation resources while doing something that had a little bit more meaning than maybe like the typical resort vacation yeah totally i i bet that the people who who go on those trips um come back feeling rested and rejuvenated and and just kind of really grateful and and humble after after something like that. Yeah. Their lives are changed. We've done, um, my wife and I have been a part of over 20 of them now. And in fact, one of our first ones, the Cameroon, uh, uh, we had a lot of kids on it. Uh, they were yeah, between the ages of 10 and 15 and 16, of course, some of their parents and, you know, we're taking them not only to Cameroon, but far beyond the airport and the capital cities. We're then driving, you know, 15 to 20 hours, um, into the remote villages where we're living for, almost a week or two and wow. having these incredibly rich experiences. Um, and, oh, you know, so, so it contrasts our day to day here in the United States and I'm sure in the UK so greatly that it really makes you evaluate our like priorities as a, as a human race. And, you know, in fact, one of the young boys that was on that first trip that was in 2009 um, he now works for Mocha and, you know, he's graduated college, but his life was never the same. And it really kind of framed the direction that he wanted to take with his, uh, yeah, his use of time. Oh, what a cool story. That must, that must feel really good. I think they're, they're also really important to the farmers as well as, as you were describing the trips, I was thinking that, you know, going back to this idea of transparency, if you're living with the farmer, with the family, with the farmers, um, as a as a consumer, you'd really start to think, well, you know, kind of go for the cheapest product, or I can be a little bit more thoughtful and spend, you know, an extra dollar or two even on a really nice quality chocolate bar, and then support these people that I'm with right now. So it's really good for the farmer because it, it encourages that kind of thought process from the consumer. At least that's what I imagine w- would be going through my mind the whole time. Is you know. I'm, I'm staying with this family. They're being so hospitable. They're such nice people. You know, I, I love everything they're doing. They're feeding me and all of these things. And how can I ever go back now and buy kind of commercial, you know, coffee or chocolate? I, j- I just wouldn't be able to do it ever again. As we start to kind of to wrap up a bit, I'd, I'd love to know, you know, we've talked a bit about transparency and how it's important for the consumer to really consider and do the research is there anything else that people listening to this podcast can do to be more eco-friendly in their daily lives? Yeah, consume with, I think, in intention and appreciation. So consume with intention of you know, feeding, you know, things that are healthy and focused around uh, good health and wellness uh, for your own body. But and then ha- having the intention of, mm-hmm. um, of doing so in a responsible way that supports everyone who grew it. And so in the sustainable kind of sense, uh, with the intention of uh, consuming food that that uplifts everyone in that supply chain. I think on our our day-to-day life, I know for me, one of the biggest kind of changes in my consumption habits, um, it happened after seeing all of the work that goes into growing the food that we eat. Not everyone can have those experiences, but I think we can 
do enough research now to really understand the extensive work that goes into making a chocolate bar and, and then appreciate those, um, um, those steps and those values and those people that are involved in that supply chain. And just being a little bit more aware of what we're consuming, you know, I, I get caught up in, in it and I'll even be doing the math on, you know, a cost of this product and kind of be breaking down the ingredient costs in my head and, and, and running numbers. And I've, I've caught, you know, several instances where it just doesn't add up. And so the commoditization of food has created such a uh, disconnect between consumers and the growers and a lack of appreciation. And I think we're so values driven um, value as far as value of uh, a cost savings that we're consuming at a, a rate that's not really sustainable on the planet, nor those involved in that, in that supply chain. And there's never going to be any positive change on the farmer level or even on the manufacturing side, if, if that scale isn't evened out a little bit. So I think just on a day-to-day basis, yeah, slowing down a little bit, appreciating what we're consuming and, and doing our best to kind of evaluate what ingredients are going into the food that we're eating. Yeah. I, I think that's, that sounds really reasonable. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this as well. And, you know, there, there's all these studies that are starting to come out that show that high quality produce that's grown is, um, uh, it just has more vitamins and more nutrients in it. So you actually need less food in order to get every everything you need to be healthy. So, you know, maybe you're spending a little bit more money uh, on a chocolate bar or, you know, produce like tomatoes and lettuce or whatever it is. You actually need less food because one of those tomatoes, tomatoes goes a lot further in terms of nutrients than kind of commercially grown tomatoes that aren't as as lovingly grown or sustainably grown consuming with intention and, and appreciation. And when you slow down, you're able to really appreciate and realize you don't need to eat as quickly or as fast. And I think that's, I think that's some great advice. Uh, if people want to try out your chocolate and, and the coffee, where can people go to actually get some? You can go to mochaorigins.com. That's our website. And it's kind of our, our storefront to the world. Mm-hmm. We'd be really happy to, uh, yeah, to hear from you as well. You can email us at hello at mochaorigins.com. We love questions. We love ideas. And you can also follow our blog too and and all the stories uh, from the farms that we work from. Perfect. And just uh, for the record, Mocha is spelled with a K. So that's M-O-K-A origins.com. And um, and Jeff, are, can you also sign up for one of the origin trips on, on the website there? Absolutely. You can sign up for our, our trips. Um, you can even sign up for a subscription to our chocolate or our coffee. Excellent. Uh, as well as you can even come to our factory in, in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And yeah, we do free tours and tastings and spend a moment with everyone who comes in the door to talk about our, yeah, our story and our intention and teach you a little bit about chocolate and coffee. Awesome. Sounds like there's a lot of things to, to do on, on the Mocha Origins website. So definitely worth, worth checking it out. Well, cool, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for your time. Really interesting to hear about the work you're doing. And I look forward to seeing what you do next and where the other trips you end up going. Sounds great. Can't wait to share that with you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for the time, Daniel. appreciate you uh, taking the moment with us. Of course. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Jeff and Mocha Origins, please visit their website at mochaorigins.com. 
and that's spelled M-O-K-A-Origins.com. You can also like their Facebook page, at Mocha Origins. You can also follow them on Twitter, at Mocha Origins, for more updates. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. We're on Spotify, the Apple Podcasts app, Stitcher, and really anywhere else where you can listen to podcasts. And let us know you listened to this episode on Instagram. Tag us, at Mocha Origins and at Sustainability Matters Today. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and talk to you soon.